0: God, we thank you so much for this moment that we have to look to your word and hear from you. God, something that we do every single week. We pray that this morning we would not take this for granted, but God, that you would help us to, by faith, believe that you have a specific word for each one of us today, that your word will not come back void. God, we acknowledge that every single person in this room is in some kind of battle, Lord, they're waging war against some sort of sin or darkness in their lives. And so, God, we we need your help. God, we need your word to be like a light that shines into the deep parts of our soul to both expose us but also to encourage us. So, God, use the next couple of moments to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a couple weeks ago, I received a text message from my wife, Lindsay, uh, while, I, while I was at work, and it went something like this. Hey, babe, I think one of the, the smoke alarms, the batteries need to be replaced because uh, I keep hearing this beeping noise. So I think to myself, okay, like, that's an easy fix. I'm not too handy, but I can, I can, I can take care of this. So come home, and sure enough, we hear that beeping noise alerting us that, Batteries need to be changed, and so we locate one of the smoke alarms, grab a few batteries, change the smoke alarm, test it super loud, but it works. And so we went on, about to eat dinner, and then we hear another beep. And we're like, man, where's that beep coming from? Like, I just changed the smoke alarm, but did that come from the same one or a different smoke alarm? We've got like five or six smoke alarms in our house. I don't know why, but that's just the way our house Uh, is modeled so I'm like man I think it came from a different smoke alarm and the rooms are pretty close together so I'm like you know what I'm just going to go ahead and change this smoke alarm just to be safe so I changed that smoke alarm and we wait a couple minutes we still hear this beeping noise like every every 30 seconds or so and I'm like man is it just trying to reset or is this kind of how smoke alarms are like I don't know and then we're like wait is that the right smoke alarm did we did you change the right one or did it come from this other one I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to change all of the smoke alarms, all six of them, just to be done with this because bedtime is coming. And in the Beals household, when bedtime is coming, like it is every man for himself. So I start changing the the batteries in these smoke alarms. Well, we run out of batteries, of course. And so we have to press pause. Lindsay runs out, grabs more batteries, comes back. I start changing them. And it's getting close to bedtime for the girls. And so they're cranky. You know, World War III is coming, and I know this. And so I'm, like, sweating, like, trying to get all the batteries changed. So finally, I do all six and reset them all, and we wait a couple of seconds, and we, hear, st- we still hear this beeping noise. Like, man, like, what is going on? And at this point, Lindsay turns to me and is like, y- you did change them correctly, right? Like, you, you know, positive, you know? And I'm like, yes, babe, I changed the batteries correctly. Like, I'm not handy, but I'm not going to hand over my man card for this one. So... <laughs> And then I'm like second guessing myself. Like, did I change them correctly? Like, I'm like pause, 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 and I'm like, oh my goodness! Like, what if I missed, messed up one, and it's causing all the. Be- and so I'm like, you know what? I'll just go and check each one of them again, and check the batteries, make sure that it's in there properly. So I go and do that, and, and it's just it's just this long ordeal. Get done with that, and we still hear this beeping noise. And I'm like, oh my goodness! I'm gonna throw these out the window. Like it's almost bedtime. Like this is getting out of hand. So Lindsay's the researcher. And she looks online at the design, the, the, the kind of smoke alarm, and there was someone that posted on this chat, which, you know, you know, how do you know if it's accurate? But we're desperate. So it said to disconnect the power from the smoke alarm, take out the batteries, wait 20 seconds, put them back in and reset them. I'm like, wow, okay, that's a little bit outside my skill set. I feel like I can't just YouTube that and figure that out, so that's stretching me a little bit. But went ahead and did it and, and finally got that done and sat down on the couch, this is like two hours later, and we're like exhausted, we've gone back and forth in healthy marital discussions during this time, <laughs> and we hear this beeping noise, and I'm like, what? But this time, it was, it was the loudest it's ever been, and so I'm like, Lindsay, it's near us, and we look down near the couch, and it's the carbon monoxide detector that's going off, and so that's what caused the beeping noise, and so I look at Lindsay, and we. Had another healthy marital discussion about <laughs> what noises make what noises. So, uh, so we changed that, put the girls to bed. And we're still married, barely. We survived that. <laughs> but throughout that process, like, I'm sure you've had those moments where you're, you're wondering, like, why do we have smoke alarms? Like, I'm, like, questioning everything at this point. Like, I just want to get rid. I just want to dismiss this noise, get this out of my life. It's an inconvenience, and just move on. And I had to, like, remind myself, no, no, no. Smoke alarms play an important role. They alert us to the presence of a fire. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's why we have smoke alarms. And it's, it's true. Like smoke alarms, when you hear those beeping noise go off, like you don't mess around with fire. Like you want to act and respond deliberately and immediately. In fact, your response to the beeping noises of a smoke alarm is literally life or death. Now you can see where I'm going with this this morning, but... In the same way that your response to the beeping noise of a smoke alarm is life or death, the same is true when you hear the beeping noise of God's conviction in your life and how it is that you respond to that. That The way that you respond when you feel the Spirit of God start to prick your conscience, when you you feel his conviction and him stirring in your heart related to a, a particular action or thought or desire, look, your response to that can be life or death, eternal life or death. That your response reveals if you really are a child of God. Look, this morning, we're gonna be looking at the topic of sin, but we don't need another message telling us that we shouldn't sin. Like, we all know that, we all know that sin is bad, sin is wrong, and so this morning, I want to look at why we should not sin and how to avoid sinning, that our passage before us gives us a really helpful attitude and posture towards sin, that it's gonna be able to ask us some questions about our relationship with sin that will reveal if you truly are born of God. In fact, here's our signpost for today, a sign that you can have assurance of your salvation is that your ongoing fight against sin reveals that you are a child of God. The aim today is not going to be sinless perfection, but the aim today is to call you to wage war against sin once again. And so the three aspects of our our passage today, three sections, is this. Number one, we're going to look at an unquestionable portrayal in verses 4, 7, and 8. John's going to give us a picture of what sin actually looks like. Secondly, we're going to look at an unparalleled power, in verse five, six, and nine, an unparalleled power. And then thirdly, we'll look at an undeniable proof in verse 10, an undeniable proof. So let's look at section number one, an unquestionable portrayal. Now we've said this before, but I wanna say this again, that our theology must drive the way that we live our lives. Like what we believe to be true about the Bible, about who God is, should shape what we think about, what we desire, and the actions that we perform. And yet, it's amazing how opposite, how in reverse that, uh, that, that happens in our lives. How often our experiences tend to shape our theology. Like how often we encounter something or we've got some type of personal relationship with somebody that then drives what we believe to be true about God and what his word actually says. I've done this many times before in my own life. Like I remember growing up, going to a church where they practiced church discipline, and there was one time that they practiced church discipline, that for me as a child, I was like, "How is this loving? Like this makes no sense. Like my experience of that led me to trying to change my theology or my understanding of church discipline. So for many years, I just wanted to remove church discipline from the Bible. I wanted to cut out Matthew chapter 18. Like this, surely this is not what it means to be a Christian, and it's because of my experience of witnessing a an example of church discipline had had an incredible effect on my understanding of what church discipline actually is. Like I think we can admit that we we do this kind of thing more than we think. That one of my growing concerns is that many are embracing a false theology because they've been hurt by a wrong application of true theology. For example, and in this passage, what we're gonna look at this morning as it relates to sin, that many are embracing a wrong definition of sin because they've been burned by an application of what godliness actually should be about. And we do this all the time with different uh, doctrines, different understandings of what it means to follow Jesus. And so John here Switching up? Thanks. Okay. All right. Sorry for the crackling. Check, check, one, two. Good? Okay. You guys hear me? Could you hear any of that for the last couple minutes? You guys good? Do I need to review that? Do we need to go back to the smoke alarm thing? All right. <laughs> so the point, the point being here is just a warning about how our experiences and how our particular encounters, even our relationships with different people, have a tendency to shape our theology and in particular, our understanding of sin. Now, with John here, he had the same issue in his church, and so he writes in this chapter a way to provide clarity about what sin actually is. That in the church and the churches that John was writing to, there was a particular group of people called the Gnostics who were uh, a little bit more relaxed in their understanding and their relationship with sin. See, Gnostics believed that the physical and the body was bad, but the spirit was good. And so for them, it didn't matter what you did with your hands, what you did with your body, how you sinned physically. What mattered is what you did internally with your spirit. And so this understanding of sin was creeping into the followers of Christ here, clouding what it means, or a healthy understanding of what sin actually is. And so John is writing here, giving us an unquestionable portrayal of what sin is by supplying three descriptions of it in verse 4, 7, and 8. Like, this is really helpful. Like, if our signpost is your ongoing fight against sin reveals if you're a Christian, we need to know what it is that we're fighting against and not take the definition of sin from the world. Okay, so three descriptions here. Here's number one. According to verse 4, sin is defiant. Sin is defiant. John, in verse 4, describes the practice of sin as lawlessness. Now, this word lawlessness, which some translations have iniquity, actually has less to do with maybe the evils that have been committed and has more to do with describing a, a habitual pattern of an individual who is directly opposing God and his righteous commands, this is an individual who is not wrestling with right and wrong and trying to uh, d- discern what, uh, what is right and to choose it. This is a person who is defiant against God and who is directly opposing God and his holiness. That Instead of looking to God to define sin and to follow him, this individual is looking within or looking to the world around them. So sin is defiant lawlessness. Number two sin is also deceptive. Sin is deceptive. In verse 7, John says, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So John is saying here, look, don't be fooled. Don't allow these Gnostics and other people to uh, diminish the reality that you need to wage war against sin. Do not flirt with sin. Do not allow sin to to creep in or, or twist what is right. That John here is warning them and warning us that part of the reality of this deceptive hold that sin can have on us is twisting the righteousness of God. That the tactics of our enemy and the strategies to get us to falling into sin has a lot to do with taking what is right and and twisting it by just a little bit. We notice this in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve fell into sin. What What did the enemy say to them? It says, did God really say? You know, taking a little bit of what's true and twisting it, thus deceiving them, falling into sin. Like the enemy has that same strategy against you and I here today, wants to deceive us. Number three, third description that John gives us is that sin is demonic. Sin is demonic. When you look at verse 8, this is a, a chilling, sobering verse to read. John is essentially saying that practicing sin is carrying out and it's furthering the plans and the desires of the demonic world. That this individual is doing what the devil does. That just as Christians should live under the influence of the the Spirit of God living in them, so the person who is practicing sin, habitually in sin, is under the influence of the devil. And so Satan, who's been opposing God from the beginning of time a behavior who also opposes God is uh, characterized by a demonic behavior like this is the this is the betrayal the, the portrayal of sin that John gives us something that sin wants to do in our lives is it wants to make righteousness unappealing do you notice that like it, and if it can't make righteousness unappealing it'll make it unsatisfying and if it can't do either of those it will try to make righteousness unnecessary. Look, Sin promises a joy and a fulfillment that it can never deliver upon. It tries to lure us away from a satisfaction in Christ with these false promises that it can never follow through on. And so every pattern of sin has the devil as its source, deception as its nature, and destruction as its goal. You know, this reminds me of uh, an illustration that I used sometime last year as we walked through the book of Hosea, and I shared with you kind of the, uh, the gruesome uh, details of how an Eskimo kills a wolf, and it's a, a really uh, helpful picture of the aim of sin that it has upon our lives. But the way that an Eskimo kills a, a wolf is an Eskimo will, will, will grab a knife, really sharp dagger, and will cover that blade with animal blood and then we'll freeze that blood and then we'll put another layer of animal blood and freeze that and he'll do this so on and so forth until the whole knife is actually covered in blood and then he'll stick that dagger into the ground dagger facing up and he'll wait see a wolf is so sensitive to the the smell of blood that he comes directly to that dagger doesn't realize it's a knife and starts licking And he starts licking over and over and over again, melts that blood, starts to become satiated with that blood, and continues to lick and lick until all he's licking is the dagger and the blade itself. But the the wolf is so intoxicated with blood, he doesn't notice that he's actually licking his own blood until he actually dies. I know that's kind of a gruesome picture, but that is the aim of sin in our lives. That sin wants to numb us until it destroys us. That it lures us away with the satisfaction of sin while all the while our souls are rotting until they are destroyed. Look, you might think that dabbling in sin or uh, kind of flirting with a little bit of the smaller sins is okay. But you need to know that the aim of that sin is to destroy you. You might think a little bit of cheating or a little bit of of deceiving or lying or a little bit of lust and sexual morality is okay, but no, no, no. The warning here is that sin will destroy you and it will find you out. Love how Adrian Rogers describes sin. He says that sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and it will cost you more than you want to pay. That habitual sin is defiant, it's deceptive, and it is demonic. That it'll cost you not only your assurance of your salvation, but it may even cost you your own soul. So that's the picture, that's the the portrayal of sin that we need to rightly understand if we're going to wage war and fight against it. But now I want to consider, well, how do we fight? How do we wage war against the sin that's in our lives? Well, it takes us to section number two, which is an unparalleled power, an unparalleled power. You look at verse 5 here, and John shows us the source of this incredible power to defeat sin. But John says, you know that he, referring to Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So here, John is reminding us that Jesus' finished work on the cross not only makes forgiveness possible, but also makes freedom from sin possible. That according to Colossians 2.15, Jesus has disarmed the rulers and the powers and the authorities of the satanic world so that you and I can actually walk in freedom and obedience, waging war against sin. That Jesus went through the tortures of the cross in order for you and I to walk in the freedom from sin. Jesus broke the powers of sin, not so that you and I can remain in sin, but so that we can wage war against it through the power of the Spirit that resides in us. So look, the question that, that confronts us today is, is the way that you're living your life, is it really worth Jesus dying for? Like When you look at the different areas of your life and how it is that you're living, are there areas in which God would look at and say, hold on, I, I died to take that away. Like, why are you dabbling in that? Why, why is there still sin in your life? Like, I, I paid the price and broke the powers of sin so that you can actually put that to death in your own life. Look, we, we need to understand that Jesus came to take away sins, not just to forgive us of sins. And so he wants to free us and to live in obedience him, And so because he took away sins, that means that there must be a new pattern for how it is that we live our lives, a new pattern for this ongoing fight against sin, a new pattern for how we look at things on the computer screen, a new power for how we extend forgiveness to others, a new pattern for how we use our words and how we interact with others and how we use our money. There's a whole new pattern for how it is that we live our lives. This is exactly what John is saying in verse 6 and 9 of our passage. He says that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. There's this new pattern of living. He says no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, that's an interesting phrase there in verse nine. He cannot keep on sinning. Now, what does John mean by this? Is John a proponent of sinless perfectionism within the Christian life? Like, can you not have assurance unless you have a, a sinless life? Can you have one sin in your life and still be a Christian? Can you have a dozen and still have assurance? What if you have 13? Do you, do you lose your salvation? Do you lose your assurance? Well, at first glance, when you kind of read this letter, it, it kind of seems like John is almost talking at bo- out of both sides of his mouth. Have you noticed that? Like, there are some verses about how Christians should not sin, and there are other Christians or other passages where Christians do sin. It's like, John, like make up your mind here. Let me give you, let me give you a couple of examples here. We're told in several verses that Christians do not sin. Not only in chapter 3 verse 6 our passage here this morning, but 1 John chapter 1 verse 6. It says if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Chapter 5 verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Okay? It's pretty clear there, but then you come across other passages where it almost feels like he's saying the exact opposite, where he's saying that Christians do sin. He says 1 John 1, 8 through 10. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. And so, Which one is it? How how do we make sense of the sin that's in our lives? I think the key here is understanding this phrase that's in verse 6 and 9 of our passage, the phrase, keeps on sinning, or even in verse 4, practice of sinning. See, with that phrase, unlike the other passages, John is implying an ongoing, continuous action in the sin. See, this probably means that what is impossible for the Christian is a life of unchanged continuation in sin, the same as when he or she was before, uh, before he wasn't a follower of Jesus. In other words, before you were a follower of Jesus, you had a particular relationship with sin. Like there was no fight, there was no struggle. You did not have the Spirit of God in you to enable you to wage war. You just did whatever your desires did within your flesh but John is saying here that a true Christian will wage war and fight and not remain in the same kind of sin that he or she was in before uh, before becoming a Christian. See, John is not suggesting that Christians will never commit a single act of sin. Instead, he's warning us that having a a, a sinful kind of characteristic of your life, a, a way of life, a habitual pattern, or a prevailing lifestyle might be evidence that you are not a child of God. It's kind of like a a father who tells his children, he says, hey kids, in my family, kids do not hit each other. Okay, now with that statement, the, the father is not saying it's impossible not to hit. Of course it's possible to hit. But what he's saying here, he's making a statement about what the normative behavior is like within his family. That he's saying, within my family, we are not going to hit one another, and that is the normative behavior. And so John is saying that practicing sinning is a deviation of what it means to be in God's family. That Christians don't go on sinning without confession and without an ongoing fight. That Christians see the sin, they hate the sin, and they wage war against the sin with an increasing vigilance As they grow up in Christ, I just want to pause there for a moment and ask you: Does that describe your relationship with sin this morning? When you look at your posture and your attitude towards sin, is it is it similar to maybe a fire that's nearby? Like, do you have a sense of urgency? Do you have an intentionality? Do you have deliberate action? A, a true christian here is one who doesn't flirt with sin but is constantly waging war against it. Like maybe you're here today and you're a christian, you're you're like man, I'm I'm throwing in the towel with sin. Like I'm I'm tired of waging war. I'm tired of feeling spiritually fatigued cuz all I do is fight sin. Maybe you're here today and you just you just need encouragement to re-engage with the battle. I don't know. Maybe you're here and you're just you're just tired and you need you need to hear somebody say to continue to fight against sin, to look at maybe lust in your life, to maybe look at, at worry in your life or greed in your life or selfishness and say to it, I'm waging war against you. You're no longer going to have a presence in my life. Like I want to encourage you today. Like if you're struggling with sin today and, and you're, uh, you're wavering on whether or not to keep fighting and to keep battling you need to understand that there is more at stake than just you in that moment. Like your sin is impacting not just you, it's impacting those around you and it has the ability to create this ripple effect of utter destruction. Look, I wanna wanna fill your heart through God's word with just this, this motivation to fight and to wage war that the normal Christian life is to put your head on the pillow and to feel spiritually tired because you've been waging war all day. That you've been fighting the lies of the enemy. You've been trying to curb those temptations that come your way because you understand that the normal Christian life is to fight and to wage war. And so what does it mean to fight? What does it mean to to engage in the battle? Right? It's a little bit abstract. Well, the way that we fight, the way that we tap into this unparalleled power is through the vehicle of repentance. Look, I know repentance is an old school word. I love this word repentance. It's so helpful. And, I, and the way that we, I think, unlock this power is through this key of biblical repentance. Look, I'm not talking about rebranding. I'm talking about biblical repentance here. Rebranding is just changing the exterior of something without really changing the interior. Like you can, you can change the logo of something without changing the essence of the product and still call it rebranding. Taco Bell did this uh, 18 months ago and it completely freaked me out. Taco Bell, 18 months ago, decided for the first time in 20 years to rebrand. And I'm thinking to myself, man, are they, are they gonna change the essence of their product? Are they going to change the, the cheesy gordita crunch without consulting me? Like, come on. Like, and so I, I freaked out. But then I noticed that all they did is just change the logo of Taco Bell. They didn't change the essence of their product. So hard tacos, soft tacos, cheesy gordita crunches, bean burritos, like we're good. Because you can change the exterior without the heart of the product. And look, for us as Christians, it is so easy to fall into this trap of rebranding rather than repentance. Let me let me unpack that for a little bit. Rebranding is prioritizing your image over intimacy with God. Like someone who falls into just rebranding wants to remove the sin in their lives because it's damaging how other people are perceiving them it has nothing to do with their communion with God their intimacy with God, they're predominantly concerned about how how other people see them, and so that's why they remove the sin that's in their lives. They're concerned about the exterior. Another characteristic of rebranding, rebranding tends to uh, prioritize just removing the guilt and the conviction from God and not necessarily the sin that's in your life. Like rebranding tends to feel like You know, I sin, I feel this conviction from God, but instead of removing the sin, I want to just uh, appease my conscience here and busy myself with good things. I'm going to volunteer somewhere, I'm going to serve at the church, I'm going to take out the trash or do some dishes because I've got this guilt about my sin, but instead of removing the sin, I'm just going to busy myself with religious activity. Another characteristic of rebranding, rebranding tends to only address the symptoms of sin, but not the root issue. Many times we want change, we want to turn from our sin, but we just don't go deep enough. But sometimes we only attack the symptoms of what we see instead of what's residing in the heart. Let me give you an example of that. That if you're struggling with pornography, and you watch pornography through your laptop, and you think to yourself, I want to remove pornography from my life, someone who wants to rebrand tends to just remove that laptop. And they think to yourself, wow, I'm free from pornography. And yet, pornography is just the symptom. The root issue is lust. The root issue is a disbelief in the gospel that is satisfying and grounded in Jesus. And so that root issue of lust Is going to demonstrate itself in a different kind of symptom. That you may not be watching pornography anymore, but you might be committing sexual morality in your mind with every person of the opposite sex that walks by you. See, rebranding doesn't go deep enough, it doesn't go far enough. But biblical repentance does go deep enough. It goes, it goes way deeper than maybe what's even comfortable for us. And Biblical repentance is way harder than what rebranding is. And yet let me remind you, you have this unparalleled power living within you by the Spirit of God who God himself wants to remove the sin that's in your life. This isn't just up to you. You have the Almighty God who is after your holiness, after your sanctification, just wants you to participate in what repentance actually is. Okay, so let me give you four C's to repentance, four C's of repentance that helps us to wage war against sin. Here's number one. The first C is conviction, conviction, A part of biblical repentance is feeling remorse, is having that conviction from the Lord that what you are doing is wrong, that as the Apostle Paul says that godly sorrow leads to repentance, that when you understand that, Every sin is ultimately against the holy uh, God. There should be a sense of conviction that starts to stir up in your heart, and so this first aspect of repentance—it's not callousness, but is feeling convicted about your sin. Number two, second C is confession. Confession, repentance is not just feeling bad about your sin, but it's taking that next step and taking that before the Lord and confessing it to him. Look, we looked at this at chapter 1, verse 9, but confessing is saying the same things about your sin as what God says about it, that it's bringing it before the light, before God. It's owning it. It's not explaining it away. It's not a blame shifting. It's not justifying it, but it's taking full responsibility of it and bringing it in the light and confessing it, asking for forgiveness. Thirdly, the third C is change. Now, this is where it gets really difficult. This is where the enemy starts to freak out a little bit. That I may even say that the enemy's okay with you maybe feeling bad about your sin or maybe even confessing your sin. But when you start to change and uproot that sin from your life and replace it with the gospel and start to live out in obedience, that's when the enemy gets a little bit nervous. See, true change is not just idol removal, it is gospel, uh, it's, it's exchanging it with the gospel. It's taking what was there in your hearts and replacing it with the beauty and the glory of Jesus on the throne that's in your hearts. See, whatever is in that throne, whatever it is that you are worshiping, that is what will shape what you think, what you believe to be true, and how it is that you live your life. So repentance involves bearing fruits, looking more and more like Jesus, and experiencing more and more victory over the temptations in your life. The fourth C, the last one here, is continuing in Jesus, continuing in Jesus. This is all about what it means to abide in Jesus, to remain in him. This is something that we'll look at next week in chapter 4 of 1 John. But part of biblical repentance is, is cultivating an intimacy with Jesus. That it's not just like using Jesus as a means to experiencing freedom from your sin, but it's using Jesus as a means to getting more Jesus in your life, of increasing that delight and that love and that joy with him. And so it's walking with him every moment of the day. Like this is is how, I think repentance is how we experience the power of God in our lives Because as John says, he came to take away our sins. And so if you want more of God's power in your life, you want to experience God more intimately and experience him more consistently, then participate in biblical ongoing daily repentance, putting to death the sin that's in your life. So we've seen an unquestionable portrayal. We've seen this unparalleled power. Number three here in verse 10 we see an undeniable proof, an undeniable proof. Verse 10 is helpful, it's almost a summary verse of this passage, but he says this, he says, by this it is evident that who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, okay, so here it is here, he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, Okay, so John here helps us by showing us where's the proof that you're a child of God or a child of the devil. And he kind of puts this almost in the negative here. He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And so to put that in the positive, he would say the proof, the undeniable proof that you are a child of God is by looking at your ongoing fight against sin and your pursuit of righteousness. He says that this is evidence, this is objective evidence that you are a child of God. It's in your daily, sometimes moment by moment, repentance of turning from sin and pursuing what is right. But let me remind you, John's not calling us for perfection. He's he's laying out a new direction of your life. He's laying out this new trajectory of, of no longer being pointed towards sin, but pointing your life, everything about your life towards Jesus. And that is proof, that is a sign that you are a child of God. Look, I want to close with just the last couple minutes here. I want to close by just encouraging us today that if you're a Christian and you're fighting against sin, like really fighting, like really struggling, like you do go to bed at night and you're exhausted spiritually because you're just waging war. I just want to give us just three points of encouragement today. Uh, that hopefully will help you keep fighting and to not give up. Okay, so three points of encouragement as we close today. Number one, be reminded that only true Christians fight against sin. Just, just remind yourself of the reality that there have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of true Christians who have gone before you, who have waged war against sin every single day of their lives. Like, that is normal, to be in a battle against sin. In other words, say in the opposite, if you're not waging war against sin and claiming to be a follower of Jesus, like be careful. Like you are on the verge of being deceived by sin. You should be constantly aware of how the enemy is tripping you up. I love Philippians chapter two, uh, or chapter one, verse six, that God is the one who began the work in us and he will see it until completion. That God began the work of salvation, and he will see to it that he will complete it. Number two here, another point of encouragement is that your fight means that God is at work in you. That your fighting and your engaging with sin is proof that the spirit of God is within you. That non-Christians simply do not fight against sin. They are slaves to the desires of their flesh. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So be encouraged today. You are not fighting alone. And then number three is that the devil cannot win. It's just good to say this out loud. Like the devil cannot win. Verse 9 says, sin will not overcome a true follower of Jesus. That Jesus, through his cross and through the resurrection, has trampled over our enemy. That he has has cut off the enemy, the head of the enemy. He has completely disarmed their power. He has uh, given us the victory through his death and through his resurrection. So you don't fight from a position of defeat. You are fighting from a position of victory. That it might seem like the enemy has this huge army, and you feel like that he's all around you, but just remind yourself that God is more powerful than the enemy, and he will make you more than a conqueror. Look, stay in the fight. Keep fighting. Keep waging war, and God will give you the victory. Let me close with a a quote from Kevin DeYoung. It's really helpful. Hopefully this fills you with some motivation as we leave today, but he says this. He says, the Bible is realistic about holiness. Don't think that all this glorious talk about dying to sin and living to God means there's no struggle anymore or that sin will never show up in the believer's life. He says the Christian life still entails obedience. It still involves a fight, but it's a fight we will win. That you have the spirit of Christ in your corner, rubbing your shoulders, holding the bucket, putting his arm around you and saying before the next round with sin, you're going to knock him out, kid. That sin may get in some good jabs, it may clean your clock once in a while, it may bring you to your knees, but if you are in Christ, it will never knock you out, that you are no longer a slave but free, that sin has no dominion over you, it can't and it won't, that a new king sits on the throne, that you serve a different master and you salute a different Lord. So look, the undeniable proof, the sign that you're a follower of Jesus is not in this sinless perfection, but it is in your ability to keep fighting against sin. Like I want you to leave in this room pumped up to wage war against sin, to look at maybe some areas of your life and to talk to sin and say, no more presence in my life. You're you're not going to have another moment of influence over me. I'm waging war against you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the power that you give us by your Spirit. God, we thank you that we are not alone in this life to to wage war against sin, but that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. God, we thank you that, Lord, that you have promised victory either on this side or the next with different sin that we encounter. And God, we need to be reminded that the devil cannot win, that the powers of sin have been stripped have been disarmed, that yes, we have the presence of sin, but Lord, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. So God, help us to wage war for the glory of your name, we pray, In Jesus' name.